Welcome to Catherine Flynn's podcast, Intelligent Edge Yoga, conversations for smart, compassionate practice. Each episode will guide and inquire into ethics-based spirituality within a modern paradigm of practice. Whether your practice is yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, or simply living a life full of intention, this is for you. I'd like you to take a moment to consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. Your pledges enable the continuation of the podcast. Patrons will also receive exclusive resources, uh, behind-the-scenes material for instructors, guided yoga and meditation sessions for yogis, and everything in between. This is just the start of something new and exciting. You can be a part of it by going to patreon.com slash yoga and clicking on the large orange button. Thanks. Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. In the wake of the anti-racism and Black Lives Matter protests across the United States and in many Canadian cities, many of us are trying to share our own work in living anti-racism. We worry about the impact our shares will have, how they will be received, if they're even necessary. We want to express ourselves authentically and compassionately, but in talking about racism in our own lives, we are unpracticed. The spiritual community is not immune to inequity and racism. There are many voices that are more recently elevated, but have experience. Their recommendations for more inclusive spaces and practices are not new ones. When I waded in, when I made an Instagram post about politics and theories of oppression, it impacted a yogi, Mitzi Malane Wilson, and I became aware of it because we both followed each other until we weren't, until Mitzi decided not to, and that's where this podcast episode begins. I had reached out to Mitzi simply with the question, with the offer, if you wanted to talk, I would I would want to talk to to check in. And we had a dialogue in the message section of Instagram and Missy graciously received my outreach to discuss racism, anti-racism, yoga, social media and allyship. We agreed to have a conversation and in agreeing to that, it was apparent that there could be something here worth sharing that yoga cultivates the skills necessary to have conversations about racism, especially when it's personal. We would later decide if it should become a podcast. This is certainly, it's certainly a conversation where you can hear that we are both trying to be careful, but it is very much an organic conversation in that no agenda was set. No questions were sent ahead of time. There were no required readings. I really hope that it is a testament to our ability to have these conversations. Mitzi also brings a wealth of experience and, and some poignant insight and beautiful phrasing. I think regardless of your positionality, you will find some wonderful inspiration for how to think and make space 
for a lot of the conversations that we're having right now. And that, as Mitzi says, should continue. Mitzi works as a full-time consultant in the nonprofit field. She served in leadership roles in behavioral health, community development, criminal justice, and youth and young adult development. She's also a self-described mystic. She loves observing life and all the magic that the universe holds. The practices she shares are inspired by her own personal growth and healing experiences. Her goal is to be a healer by helping people and communities reconcile psyche and soul. Through yoga and her growing understanding of yoga, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, and Reiki, she helps a person garden their spirit. You can see why we got along. Mitzi aspires to be a conduit for peace, love, and curiosity about existence. She has a specific interest in offering healing-centered practices for communities of color to heal generational trauma. Mitzi lives in the Midwest. She lives in Indiana, which I knew nothing about, and so I asked her about it, and we talked about winter. But we move past weather fairly quickly. I am so grateful that she agreed to join me for a conversation, and I hope to have more in the future. Before we start, Mitzi just wanted me to clarify the term BIPOC, which is a term used typically in a U.S. context to highlight the unique relationship to whiteness that Indigenous and Black people have to express the shape of experience of and relationship to white supremacy for all people of color. I've linked to the BIPOCproject.org in the show notes for you to read more. Mitzi also wanted to acknowledge the people who have been important to her on her path. I've linked a lot of their work in the show notes for you. These yogis and important people include Michelle Cassandra Johnson and her book, Skill in Action, Mitzi's mentor and teacher, Linda Sama Carl, Sonia Renee Taylor, whose work has been greatly influencing for Mitzi, and in addition, the work Healing Justice Frame shared by Prentice Hemp Hill, as well as Mitzi's father and all her ancestors so presently with her. Let me know how it landed for you. Here we go. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I'm I'm a natural light person, so I'm a little thrown off because I have a, a lamp here that isn't usually here. So yes. So where remind me where you're calling from? Indianapolis, Indiana, Midwest, US. So okay. yeah. that that blocks out. I'm I'm not good at geography. That is. <laughs> and uh, and America has a lot of states, and I don't yeah. know anything about Indiana. Is that well, born and raised Indiana? Yeah, I um, grew up here. I lived for about seven years um, in Chicago, but I've been back here now just as long. So, but yeah, there's not a a whole lot happening in Indiana. But geographically, we're known as the crossroads of America because we kind of like sit like smack dab in the middle of the country, in the middle of the Midwest. So, yeah, but then that means we're landlocked and (laughs) trying to how to describe it. You know, we get the balance of, you know, winter, summer, spring, which is nice. We get all all seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Our winters aren't as long as like Chicago, Illinois, which kind of gets further, further north. But then our, um, our summers, we get like 
true summers, which is interesting. Like once you hit a certain point going south, like everybody just gets heat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just how long you get heat and how humid it is. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of my old, uh, so my understanding is that Michigan probably has the greatest winter solidarity with us. Yes. <laughs> and uh, maybe upstate New York, although it already starts to get warmer when you get close to the lakes, you get the lake effect. So you're calling from Indiana. So tell me, let's just start generally, just tell me about yourself and uh, and then evolve it into yourself in a yogic context. That's a really interesting narrative to step into. I guess in, in terms of me, it definitely starts with my upbringing in Indiana. Grew up kind of, um, there's like a main interstate here, kind of it circles the city called 465. And I, I joke, I kind of grew up around 465 that my family moved a little bit. And so we grew up in, in kind of what is the, the west side of the city where there was, you know, quite a bit of diversity for the Midwest and, and Indiana. And then for uh, several years, we moved up to the western suburbs of Chicago. And again, it was at that point in time actually fairly diverse for the Midwest. And then um, we moved back to Indianapolis or just outside to a town called Fishers. And at that time, my sister and I were kind of one of five Black people, people of color. It felt like I think there were a few others, <laughs> but, you know, it was like you could count it on, on one hand, you know, at our um, middle school in that at that point in time, it was a town. So it was um, definitely, I don't want to say eye-opening, but it was, for whatever reasons, the the way I received it was really centering and kind of pulled me within myself. Some regards, I'm, you know, a natural introvert, and I think we relate on that. And so, but it, it just started me in all this processing of aspects of the other places that I grew up in and was raised and, you know, the, the place where I was at, at that point in time, which didn't even, I, I would say they did not acknowledge for my recollection, um, Martin Luther King Day, you know, which is a national holiday. It was like, how, like, kind of how did I want to be in that moment? And how did I want to stand like in myself and, you know, for myself in that community. And kind of as I did that, I started to, you know, recognize others that were similarly situated in in different ways, you know, aspects of how my friend group grew, but also aspects of really how my, like my heart for advocacy began. It's just really kind of speaking out when things, when I felt things that, whether you want to say weren't equal or weren't weren't equitable. And were you a teenager at this point? Yeah, I was, I think, like middle school, probably 12 at that point in time. But by the time I reached high school, I was like 15 and just really aware and observant. I don't know at that point in time that I would have said that I was woke. I I was not woke at that point in time just because of (laughs) the education. I was still within the education I was receiving. And as much as I had, you know, the support and kind of our, you know, the the history and, and teaching through our um, our upbringing. I, I don't think that I, at that point in time, was kind of seeing systems and, and structure, but I was definitely seeing that there were people who were left out or had a sense of not belonging. So. Mm-hmm. In your home, how did your parents, how did your parents talk about race with you? Yeah, it was interesting because I, you know, I see a lot of dialogue right now about kind of parents sitting their children down, you know, and having the talk. 
that is something that I, I recollect very strongly because I, I think it was always intrinsic in any conversation or discussion we were having. There wasn't any one talk. It was always identifying in, in the moment, you know, various situations where we needed to be aware of really our agency at any one point in time and to understand that, yes, as like young people, there are structures of authority, but yes, as young people within that authority, there are structures of oppression and recognizing that and the difference. So that's something that I'm really grateful for in our upbringing, always being like centered and, you know, like critical thinking, being able to kind of question, even within our household, the authority, like not in a way to say that we didn't have like punishment and that that was definitely a thing. Um, but they always wanted us to kind of understand the why nothing was arbitrary. And I, I think that's because a lot of things in in the world as an adult, I I wouldn't call them arbitrary <laughs> because they're systemic, but they're not truth. And, and that's how I kind of use the, would call them arbitrary, that they're, they're, the systems are, are made or are, are not in my truth and really don't have truthful reason around them is almost how I, I would frame them into question. Um, oh. oh, I want to follow that. So I want to put a bit of a pin in that and then come back to it because I feel like that's a that's an excellent segue into the yoga piece. Mm-hmm. But back to systems for a moment and the subtlety of systems, what you said that there was no sitting down to have a talk, you know, in, in my life, the talk was about, about menstruation <laughs> and, <laughs> and becoming a woman. Like that's what that the talk means. But in that, in that, instance it's it's referring to something that a child doesn't know right Mm -hmm. here's the thing you don't know about how your body works but the talk when it comes to black parents speaking to their children about racism and the dangers the like real dangers that it poses to them assumes that they don't know assumes they haven't had experiences about you know and and obviously you introduce your kids to things as you as you feel it's timely and appropriate but my impression would be that that whether we can name it we always have a sense of these systems at play because you would experience them Mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think just by my nature, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly sensitive and kind of reading people and reading energy. I can um, vocalize that, speak to that differently now. But I, you know, I, I deeply sensed a lot of things. And I, I think at that point in time, I was more what people would call shy because I was really like quiet in my perceptions and being able to verbalize what I was experiencing but as I got older, there became more words. And, you know, especially now I'm like, oh, like all these things just kind of, you know, all the pieces come together, you know, even thinking about something like my kindergarten class and then going to a sleepover and the ways that I felt at that sleepover, you know, being one, uh, like the only Black person, only person of color, you know, at that sleepover in this particular scenario, I think about the whole memory I have is really just this disassociation um, Mm. of the experience there. And I remember coming home and did or didn't I not have fun? I was just like, I don't, 
<laughs> I was there, <laughs> you know, and I, I actually don't think I had fun, which was hard because, you know, everyone else was was having fun. And so it's those sorts of things that then peeling back why I, you know, why I didn't have fun. I can pick those things apart and see it now. But as, you know, five, it was confusing. Mm-hmm. So you developed a voice you feel more in high school and and comfort with talking about difference and different experiences. At what point did you start practicing yoga? I, I assume that you started practicing yoga the way a lot of people do, which is you started doing yoga poses on a mat and going to classes. Yeah, I when it comes to defining it as yoga, I started practicing yoga. Actually, the, the first class I went to was an undergrad, and it was a part of like a recreation course. And so there, each month or, or so, it changed. And so we had this month that was yoga. And I remember thinking, wow, this is not for me. Um, <laughs> and it was, I, it was so funny because it was like... I didn't feel like I was doing enough. I, at that point in time, was doing a, a lot of running and cycling. And for some reason, it just was like, I, I just felt like I was laying there. And then probably four years later, uh, in graduate school, I went back to a yoga class after doing a bit of Pilates. And that's kind of mm. how I ended <laughs> up in yoga. And I felt so much embodiment that I, I wondered how I missed it the <laughs> The, the first time after that, you know, first class um, while I was in um, graduate school, it was literally that I was going, like I fit it in my schedule and I was going every day because there was this, you know, thing happening in my physical experience, but most specifically around my mental health. I, I knew it very presently as it, you know, as it was happening because I was in a lot of stress while I was in graduate school in an environment that was like really difficult on my psyche. I was in law school mm-hmm. um, and kind of at that point in time, I think was what I would say was a bit of my, you know, awakening or that, you know, that that journey into now knowing what the systems are, growing greater understanding of the systems and of law and of these structures and how I was to be in that was very, was a very difficult time because the way that I was receiving the education was to really be focused in a, in a way that wasn't necessarily, you know, social justice oriented, although I did find those spaces, but the whole framing of the law school experience was not necessarily around that. So you didn't, you didn't find, you you didn't find teachers and mentors and conversations and classes that you'd been lacking in high school that I think a lot of us would hope you'd at least find in university and grad school. Those weren't happening. Yeah, I, I did find key mentors, but in as much as they were those key mentors, they were, they were definitely like gatekeepers. I I definitely experienced uh, direct racism (laughs) in the setting. And it was, I think it was the first time that I I really felt, felt the barriers. You know, I, like I said, I was kind of growing up knowing that I, I had this agency but it was, I was within the structure of a system that had, in my frame, already decided that I, that I wasn't going to do well and, and really, you know, had to, to fight to prove otherwise. And I, I'm not a person that particularly likes proving. 
<laughs> so I'm like, you know, I care less. But the way that law school is set up is that you 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 have to at least within the you know the states, is you you have to fall in line and kind of be within the system because that's how you're graded. I have a couple of questions and one share. I when I, I did I worked on a PhD that I was defunct. I didn't finish it. I'm not Dr. Flynn, and uh, <laughs> we had it was a I was it was cultural studies. I was doing food studies, but we had a methods course, and I would tell people that I felt so um, I felt so representative of. Uh, mainstream heteronormative white culture because everyone in this course seemed to represent fascinating intersectionalities and that's where their work was located. And the cool thing about the methods course is that the professor said essentially that we have people in this course who are doing really interesting work from marginalized communities who have not been given the opportunity to to set the discussion Mm -hmm. and so if you are present in a way that um supports their work i consider that excellent participation and as you have experienced grad school is is convivial in that we're in it together but it's still competitive Mm -hmm. And so you're very trained to not necessarily create space for other people to elevate their voices. So to be told you can achieve <laughs> high by being quiet <laughs> was, was radical and effective. And I, I think that's such a, a key space to create when, you know, like you mentioned, there's that kind of that competitive structure that is built into a lot of graduate school programs because what gets lost or dismissed is like what we're learning from each other, you know, and the setting that I was in was that we were to learn what everybody else has learned and to fall in that line as opposed to really like building knowledge together. Um, and I, I think when you're in a place of building knowledge together, then yes, there's space to set the tone for kind of why everybody is in the room and what they have to offer. And like you said, leaving space, you know, to center other voices. So that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> I developed some, some good relationships and I developed some understanding that was, that was very helpful to me. And, and I, I might touch back on it later in the conversation, but I want to bring it back to you because at this point, you're in grad school, you are about to start to really get into yoga, and you mentioned that now you're aware of, you know, lifetime awareness of systemic racism, but now you've also experienced direct racism. And before you get into yoga, do you remember... Um, you know, what was your embodied experience of, of racism? Like what was happening in your nervous system at those times? Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, that wasn't my, you know, my first experience of direct racism, but it was one of the, the first that internally rattled me. When I speak to that, when, it, you know, one of the things that I, that's really true and important to me is resourcing 
And in that moment, I like I wasn't very resourced, you know, away from home in an experience that was, you know, really unfamiliar to those who were mentors and supportive of me from a family perspective. I had other mentors from undergrad that were, you know, there as support, but, you know, those were tangential in a way um, so that I wasn't necessarily around very many people that I felt were having my direct experience. And so there were, you know, groups for students of color and Black law students, and I, I connected into those groups. But when it comes to kind of those long-term roots that you feel and being able to, to lean back on them, I felt lost. I felt unsupported, not to say I was not supported, but I felt unsupported. And my, my nervous system was really just frazzled and fried and sad and anxious. And I, I think it took, you know, getting to the mat to one, you know, process that energy, but also to claim who I inherently was. That is, yes, I'm a sensitive person, but I I do have a voice and I I have a lot to say. I don't present in, in the way that is the way that other students within law school present. And that is, you know, received as the, you know, the standard. At that point, it was like, I don't care to be the standard. I'm not here for that. And once I kind of was rooted in that, then my, you know, every time I came back to the mat, I was coming back to that person, to that, that knowing. I didn't know how rooting it was until I, I had a little bit of time away from my yoga practice and then experienced the, the loss of my father. And like the first thing I did was roll out a yoga mat. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is how I practice. This is my work. It's, and I think I've, you know, said this in other spaces. A lot of people talk about off the mat into the world. For me, it's the world is happening and it brings me to my mat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm impacted by, you know, daily, <laughs> all that is going on. And the, the mat is, is resource. It, if, if there is such thing as safe space, it's safe space. What kind of yoga did you start with? This was at a, you know, one of those large gyms. Don't know what, to, <laughs> you know, it was probably, you know, physical fitness, yoga. It was just fine. It worked for me, but I, it wasn't any particular tradition that I was aware of. But when my father passed and I really intentionally came into the practice of yoga as a student, I started with the Ashtanga. Mm. Um, and that was, for me at the time, what I needed was, because um, I, I just felt very, not stuck, but just heavy. Um, and so it, it just, it mobilized me and got energy moving and helped me me process and, and resource. Yeah. It's a sharp, strong practice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny now, like when I, there's been a couple of times I've, you know, tried to go back to aspects of that practice and it's like, mm, my body doesn't, doesn't need that. But I, you know, I, I still have such a, a strong appreciation for that style of practice where it just the energizing aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And so you're in law school and you're doing Ashtanga yoga. And then where do you go? What happens from there? So, you know, once I leave uh, law school, it's kind of very close to the, the timeline of when my dad was ill. Really that that whole period of time when my um, it's about probably two years when my dad was ill. And then, you know, when he passed was really a, a 
phase of coming to like who I am and there, you know, there was an aspect of that in the, the years of law school, but it became very integral when my dad passed because there, there was so much of me in him. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, one of the things that I had realized, especially with the Ashtanga practice, and it was a, a lot of the binds. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these physical ways of like holding myself and getting myself into shape was making me realize that there was, there was all this territory that was for me that I, I hadn't explored. And that was like the, you know, this, this triggering in a, in a positive way moment that there were, because I was so connected to my dad, there were, there were places that were mine that I did not feel ill myself. And so it, I was now kind of on, like on the path to, to fill those spaces. So. And is that what led you to yoga teacher training? That got me there. That's a good question what the actual connection was. Teacher training, I, I keep coming, I realize I keep coming back to like deepening my level of practice at points of transition. So when I met my partner is what led me to teacher training because it was not to become a teacher, but to better embed my practice with this person alongside me. You did it together? We didn't do it together, but, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but you know, kind of bringing this person, yes. um, you know, into my life and understanding before that, you know, there, there are probably aspects of codependence that I, you know, that I had with my, my father. And so making sure that I was like very well rooted in myself and like in, embedded in me for a lack of a, a better frame. And so as I was kind of deepening my study was then kind of, that is kind of the option to deepen study these days is yes. through um, teacher training. But I, I then, you know, did realize that the spark, you know, for teaching. And I've always had a general interest in teaching generally things. Um, mm -hmm. Like you said, I, I considered that PhD pursuit as well, but it's, it is greatly filled through, through teaching yoga. And I, I see it as an opportunity to share my learning and to, to give back. I'm, I'm not an expert at all. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely um, a student with a, with a heart for sharing. Was your yoga teacher training similar, you know, maybe different, but similar to your law school experience? Did you, were you, were you did you find yourself in the minority? My teacher training, there was a, it was a fairly diverse group of us. And that was what, you know, was a draw for me, as well as there was, it was uh, a school that was kind of set apart in certain ways from the, the overall like wellness industry in our community. And so it was also because, and I, I know this is your interest as well, but because we learned Ayurveda alongside the, you know, the physical practice of yoga. So it was a very, at that point in time, it was a, a homing experience for me. I think it is what embedded a, a level of confidence in me that I had not, that had probably fallen apart from the law school experience that uh, how, you know, how I show up is how I show up, how I present is how, how I present. I claimed that back while in law school, but I, I was still really, in certain ways, shattered inside just because of the compounding, you know, after that experience, the loss of my father. And so it was, 
an experience that really, I think why, like why I went to it was what it, it really rooted me and, and kind of gave me a foundation to live from. So. So the, the yoga school, and most of the time you don't know who's participating in a training until you show up. So the yoga school, they, they position themselves as, as creating a diverse community through their, through their teachers or as a goal of the, of the training? That's a good question. They had a very strong, you know, community aspect. So I had already, um, mm. you know, been taking classes there. And when I looked around the room, I, I wasn't the only person of color in a room. There were other um, teachers of color that were, you know, listed on their on their website, and our learning was not. There wasn't necessarily one dominant frame of learning. We were presented with kind of a, a scope of like what yoga is. You know, there were probably five or six different sections between, um, you know, asana, philosophy, Ayurveda, body work, and some other anatomy, some other components with the understanding and, and almost really using Ayurveda that we all have unique makeup and constitutions. And so how we receive this information is how each individually will receive it and how we each individually receive it will then be a factor of how we share it. That left me a lot of space. Um, I think that's what, you know, we talked about with your um, methods course for me to, to really center my experience. So that was your experience, but in conversation with others, what do you feel happens when you, you see a diversity of people reflected in the room and in the leadership? Mm. You know, I can speak to that from my experience at, um, you know, most recently, there's a, a yoga studio studio here that is focused on, you know, being a space for Black and Indigenous people of color. And I um, taught there most of last year. It's a completely different atmosphere when, you know, when the tone has been set. Uh, there, there is that sense of respect when, you know, a person comes into the space that's not, you know, Black, Indigenous, person of color, that it's not presumed to be their space. And so that interaction in the beginning changes so much. For me as a teacher, I'm you know, not concerned about what experience the person had before, what, the, what this person perceives to be yoga and what this, what this person perceives as me teaching. They know what the studio is about. And so I'm here to teach from the center of me and do nothing short of that. So it's, and for, for those that are in the room, I think the spirit of what is shared is, is way more authentic. And, you know, that's coming from a, a humble place, but I was a much better teacher in that space than some other spaces I had taught in for those reasons. Um, my teacher trainings and retreats are are, you know, overwhelmingly white, not always exclusively, uh, but overwhelmingly. And the previously, the, no, not previously, but one of the experiences of holding trainings that I've had was a training where everyone was extremely young. I was very young, but they were even younger and they were all in their early twenties or younger. And 
what ends up happening to my observation is you end up confirming each other's worldview. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and especially where people might find themselves in the minority, you know, not everyone has the resources to disagree with so many voices that are possibly confirming each other in overt and subtle ways. And I, I can see that that would be such a, a missed opportunity and that that really, um, it's the role of the facilitator to see how they can mitigate that because this, this practice is about cultivating, as you said, you know, rootedness in ourself, confidence in the ability to stand in ourselves, but also to question the validity of our worldview. Since we are creatures who, who so often look simply to confirm it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, um, that was something that I, I really appreciated in this space because it, it kept me in my learning as well. Um, that I, I wasn't, you know, slowly in as much as you try not to, there's ways that we, we accommodate, you know, so I, I wasn't like slowly, you know, accommodating to, to fit an expectation, you know, of a body of students that are coming to a class. I was able to each class be present to, you know, who was in the room and what was in the room mm-hmm. uh, and, and to teach from that. And, you know, there are days where I, you know, I would be of the mindset that this is, you know, I, I'm not one of those that, you know, writes out a, a really structured plan for, for the class, but I, I do have some ideas of what the experience will be like. And there are times where I, I completely had to shift that and, and felt the comfort to do that and to be fallible as a teacher. And I, I think that's the spaces, space that becomes created as well, because somehow within this within the, what you frame as kind of the people that are affirming each other is also the, the role of someone who is more than a facilitator, but somehow expert or guru that limits exploration and, and learning. And I, in my view, the, the liveliness of yoga, like I think it is a living practice. So. Mm-hmm. My experience of being questioned, I've, I know I have grown very gentle with it. (laughs) (laughs) I know I have not always been gentle with it. And that arises, I think, from insecurity, from self-doubt, from academia, which does not encourage you to share the process. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Hide the process, share the conclusion. Right. <laughs> you grow gentle with getting questioned. And when I think when you have sufficient confidence that you do have something to share, that you do have wisdom, I think prior to that, you're doubting yourself. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and so you, you hang, you, you grip, you grip tightly to your platform and to, like you said, that, you know, not facilitator, not facilitator of a horizontal experience um, of co-creators and co-explorers, mm-hmm. but someone who's going to disseminate the information. What is being 
spoken to, I believe, is how um, spaces that intentionally center um, other voices, marginalized voices in ways, I won't say automatically, but are set to really disrupt and dismantle aspects of the kind of the, the yoga studio premises um, in, in Western culture. There, there are obviously, you know, still ways that all that, you know, embeds and, and falls back into place, you know, just because of the, the dynamics of owning and operating a studio. But it, it does like lift up space for more of that, like you should, said, it's cooperative or it's, it's ever, everyone here is student and teacher in a way. So, yeah. Some, I just finished teaching an Ayurveda course, and with Ayurveda, everyone, of course, has specific experiences behind their questions. So they'll ask a question that's a little specific or a little general, but I know that they're, you know, these questions arise because we, we have something we would like to change when we have no desire for change, we have no questions. <laughs> and something that I emphasize when I teach Ayurveda is that in yoga and Ayurveda, I would say in life, you have to treat and address the specifics, but you also have to practice more generally because uh, it's important to go, you know, micro and macro. Uh, because if we live and we practice in a general way, that will tend the edges. That will take care of a lot of the circumstances that give rise to these specific things that need addressing. At the same time, where there are specific needs, they have to have a tailored response. And so yoga, you know, it's this emphasis on, on union, and it is about what do we share in common, but we all show up on the yoga mat with specific needs that need addressing. And so I would love to hear how, how you think of that in your work and in your life. How, how, do, you, how do you move between this micro and macro? I enjoy that question. Because I, when I, when I spoke to that, you know, that moment where I almost sought the um, PhD, um, you know, I, it was, I took some classes in seminary and I was studying the, the theology of Dr. Martin Luther King and embedded in his theology is this frame of personalism, which basically says that we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every being. I link that with Ayurveda, you know, when I'm teaching, because if, if I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every being when I'm showing up and I'm facilitating, it's not necessarily about what I specifically want to teach. It's what's showing up in the room. In, in larger studio classes, it, you know, becomes a, a little more diff difficult, which is why I tend to, to really like a class of like five or no more than seven. But to you know, kind of like pepper in something for, for everyone. But also as I'm doing that, it's these individuals in this space together create a, another, another entity that is also to be tended to um, from, from my frame of how I teach. And so I think what 
kind of what gets created by the individual attention in that maybe it's called the, the union of the, you know, of yoga and tending to that, help, you know, helps us to be with the experience of, of everyone in the room. And that's honestly, I think what I love about teaching because I'm a person, I think we're, we both went toward the academic that can be very in my head. And so when I get done teaching, it's like I've, I've been embodied, but I've not been in my head. I've been feeling and sensing all, all these other things and feeling and sensing with all these other bodies. It's such an important lesson for, for teachers in this realm especially those of us who tend toward the academic. There's a, a talk I reference often with this education expert from England. He's one of the original TED Talks, Sir Ken Robinson. Hmm. And he talks about how education teaches children that the right answer is more important than the creative process and trying. And so we teach children to be afraid of being wrong. And, and in this talk, he talks about how academics ignore the body and see their body as transportation for their heads. <laughs> Something I've really grown to appreciate about, about my practice is that a lot of intellects often feel they can think their way into embodiment. So I will think about what the conclusion of this practice would be. <laughs> I will hold it in my mind space and I will achieve it <laughs> rather than yeah, rather than having to actually be quiet and, and be with the processes of the body that, that can yes, be redirected by the mind, but more by turning toward than turning away. There are, you know, two different experiences and, with those two different types of classes or types of facilitation. There have been moments where if there's something going on with me and I, I, I lead a very heady practice because I, you know, I've, I've had a day and I, I can't, um, you know, show up to be completely in sensing space. And I, I always feel at a, like at a loss in a, in a certain way. Um, and that's, you know, that's the balance again, kind of like of the studio dynamic, because I'm signed up to teach this class at this, at this time, the, those days when I can, when I can really like center and ground and, and just be with the experience, the experience that is like mirrored back to me, um, is like, it's just, people have, have been through something that's transformative, mm -hmm. um, you know, as opposed to something that is performative. Mm-hmm. I really like the phrase sensing space. <laughs> That's, are you familiar with the term interoception? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for, you know, should this become a podcast um, for anyone who is not familiar? Well, why don't you give your definition of interoception as it relates to sensing space too? Yes. I frame interoception really just as this network of, internal since like I can't help but use the word but this network of internal communication of our our external sense experience that is all for lack of a better word I see it as cosmic like almost like you see the constellations like of reading this 
information and, and sharing it, it all then kind of illuminates experience as much as our like physical sense perception. But it, it like it orients our like almost it orients our nervous system mm. in space in as much as the physical body does. And so you described your practice space as a sensing space again, which I love. And I want to reach back to earlier in our conversation about, I'm not going to get it right, so you're going to have to clarify again, the difference between something being real but not true and having to, to work with, with how that was impacting you and, and how it wasn't a part of your truth. And I don't know if this will answer your question, but I, my mind is now still on interoception. And so what we, like what we see is true and what is unseen is also true, that there's this whole internal experience that we're having that where you can start to connect to that like general sense of knowing that people speak to, at least for me. And so it's from that place of that general sense of knowing that you can then ascertain externally like what is untrue and what is true. <laughs> and maybe that's a, a little, um, embedded in, in metaphysical, but that's what I, my mind does. <laughs> I make this gesture frequently when I teach and it refers to a lot of things, but it refers to a, a sense of being centered from the subtle anatomy perspective. Our practices should disturb and disrupt energetic flow, pranic mm-hmm. flow, but they then move them toward channels, nadis, for for processing, for mm-hmm. enhanced flow, for being moving through at the right pace in the right space, and also toward dominantly the central channel, sushumna. And essentially, if our body-mind container is sufficiently resilient enough that these these latent impressions, these samskaras can be disrupted and then, and then processed through sashumna. We're having, uh, uh, we're operating from a more awakened, but Mm -hmm. grounded place. We, we all have those moments where even when the experience isn't pleasant, we're like, no, no, my, my perception is accurate. This is what's happening because even though it's disruptive and uncomfortable, we sufficiently have the tools and the resources to, to be with mm-hmm. it and allow it to move through. When you speak of that discomfort, it, it brings me back to the, you know, the question of what happens in the, you know, the space where it's, it's clear that, um, you know, black and indigenous people of color are centered is that I think there is discomfort person that is, you know, not BIPOC, you know, coming into that space. And it's when you step into that, that space of discomfort, but it's, it's stabilized discomfort in a certain way that there's this unfiltering that can, that can happen. And as much as for a person that um, has maybe consistently been in spaces where they don't feel safe that there's this release that can happen. And it's like, it's like a flip of what's happening out there, you know, to happen um, in common spaces. Yeah. It's powerful. 
I want to talk about how specifically how we landed in this conversation. Yes. Um, and uh, so I want to talk about that. I really like the phrase unfiltering. And I really like the phrase stabilized discomfort. A popular thread in the yoga world, particularly through a trauma sensitive lens right now, is that yoga does not need to be uncomfortable. You know, that the phrase comfortable with the uncomfortable has glorified suffering as a means to growth and has taught people to ignore signs of the body Mm -hmm. and to suppress signs of the body. I think that that's a valid investigation in those terms, but I can see this, this shift toward being with signs of the body in discomfort, but maybe there's this new way of thinking about yoga practice off the mat and having conversations and holding ideas that arise discomfort and are necessary conversations. Yeah, that's really, what's the word? It's transferable, you know, individuals that are, you know, the, that are often the, that systems are, are set up for their comfort, that this moment is requiring of them to acquaint with discomfort and not from, you know, a way of doing harm, <laughs> which it may, it can feel that way, <laughs> but finding ways to be resourced to, to handle discomfort. And as much as my lived experience has been this journey of resourcing myself for everyday discomfort, if we can begin to kind of turn the, you know, to shift the balance, I, I think that it, it opens up a lot of room for learning for white people and it creates a space for healing for Black and Indigenous people of color. And at times, those things won't look like they happen together. There are times when there should be, for certain processes, white space, and for other processes, um, either Black or Black Indigenous people of color space. You know, there's a lot of anxiety around that because yoga is, you know, supposed to make you feel good is, you know, you know, a lot of kind of the, you know, the, the conversation as to, you know, why people go to, you know, to yoga. For me, yoga is just to help me feel and to help me be with my experience. It's not, you know, to kind of bypass anything. Um, it's to be with the experience. So, you know, as much as I can, can feel the, the grief and the sadness of this moment, I can also connect to um, the joy and the hope and the awe and the aspiration of this moment. And it, it takes the polarity in a certain way of, of being with both of those things to come to that, that stabilized place to act and to do differently. We met in a space that I think the digital space mm, presents as everyone's space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but that's another, you know, that's another example of of how white privilege limits limits our perception, how all of our experiences shape our perception. The digital space, that which is created dominantly by white people. I used to work in digital marketing, and and the the pit was in my office anyway was filled with white dudes. But even in this space, which we we think is ephemeral and co-created, we create it in our own language and we create it informed by our own experiences. 
And so these structures are actually still creating spaces that favor one perspective. Right. And so we have not met. This is the first time we've done Voices and Faces. And we were connected on Instagram. And so the events of the last few weeks, um, I wasn't sure, like a lot of people, I wasn't sure how to participate. I also am Canadian. I'm not American. And that's not to say that Canada doesn't have its own problems and systemic racism. We do. It's It's different. Similar processes play out. I'm very passionate about looking at things relevant to close to home because that's one of the problems with conversations about racism is that we constantly want to put it somewhere else. It's not here. It's happening over there. And so that gets me off the hook for having to look at how it's playing out close to home. And so I'd, I'd put up one thing, um, And then I waited some time because I just felt, you know, no one needed to hear from me (laughs) and, and my voice was not missed. And so then I thought, how am I going to, now that the, the conversation is less dominant, how am I going to rekindle participation? And so I talked a little bit in this post about how I had been thinking about action in my life and anti-racism in my life. And, uh, and you liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, this is not a comfort zone. Yoga teachers are not used to talking about how the specifics of how they social media and you liked it. And then you're like, went away (laughs) (laughs) and then you went away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not good business practice to chase down everyone who unfollows (laughs) you on Instagram. Can't recommend that. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to run, I'm going to run the risk that I upset Mitzi (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to reach out and just offer to talk. I think now it's time for you. Okay. <laughs> you bring us up to speed on your experience. Yeah. No, it's I'm I'm enjoying that we are having this dialogue because I, I think it's just what we what we talked about. It's that, you know, being with that discomfort. I think in, in my experience that morning I and I can't re- recall what particular day it was, but like you had suggested, there had been a lot happening on social media. And so my original inclination was like, yeah, I, you know, I see someone in their process. I see someone, you know, doing their work. And I was like, I like that, you know? And so, and it was like, that was my, you know, my general feel coming to Instagram that morning, like, yay, people are, you know, doing their work. And by, if this was like 7 a.m., by 11 a.m. that day, it was just like, you know, we talk about that, like sensing in the body. Do I, do I fully like that? Uh, do I, you know, do I truthfully like that? Is that, was that a, you know, a gut reaction? And maybe in the morning, you know, like what you see is true, what is unseen, you know, that in the morning that was true, in the afternoon maybe it's not true. And so part of me really kind of being with my voice and, and being in my truth was like, as this sits with me, this is not true. 
And so in, in my head, it was actually like a, a practice in the process for the moment that we are in. And it's still very early, but I, I didn't, I don't want to set a pattern of automatically like, and you weren't requesting my validation, but validating every person I, I see in the work, that's not my role. And so that was kind of the, the pull and, and the resistance for that, because really the, the energy that I'm really feeling is, and we, I've talked about it, like I, I've been in this work personally for a long time. It's, it's, not a, it's not a housewarming, <laughs> you know, it's not a welcome. And as much as I, I would love for it to be that in my physical being, it's, it's not a housewarming we are like, we're moving and you're showing up late with the truck, you know, <laughs> like, finally, <laughs> you're here and I got all this stuff. We got to, you know, we got to get going. And so that was uh, like a really important moment for me to be in process with. I wasn't thinking about how it would be received and kind of what information Instagram communicates, but I, I was very well aware that, um, you know, that I, I wanted to have something more intentional with you. I needed to kind of like sit and, and let the, you know, the energy process, but I didn't want it to happen like in some side like conversation with within the, you know, within the comments. That's very limiting. So it, it honestly felt very, when we talked about creating that space, in a certain way of relief that I don't have to be the one to, in, to invest the energy to, you know, like work through this even though it's virtual, but to work through this relationship when that's usually the space that I'm in. It's like, okay, I have to get myself together and then go back into this relationship um, if I'm choosing to, you know, kind of speak my truth and set boundaries, sort things out, whatever. And so when I received your message, it was honestly a, a relief. And in terms of the, the unfollowing, it was because I, it was like a, like a marker for myself. And like, this is just me and my, my mind on, on that day was that I, I enjoy your, your feed. I, and I enjoy, we've not been in conversation, but I've, you know, listened to your podcast. So I'm like, I enjoy our conversations and I just don't want to be pulled at this moment to be incongruent to myself. And so I, I actually do intentionally check in on your feed. <laughs> I'm still following you, just not <laughs> through the algorithm of Instagram. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, the other day I was like, can I, can I go back and follow? <laughs> but this, this in the reality is the, you know, is the, the messiness of it all. The frame of this dialogue is happening in, in social media and it's, you know, happening where people aren't able to, to pace themselves. And it's, it's happening in a way where it's like, you know, we talked about those like like people coming together and affirming each other. You know, it's like, well, I, I liked them yesterday, so I'm inherently almost liking them today. Mm. And so I I want to unpack that for myself. And I, I am being very intentional about my Instagram space. It is social media. I, you know, I get that, but it's, a, it's still an extension of myself and what I'm putting out there. It's the, you know, it's for me how I'm sharing my, you know, my public semi-private space, I, I have intention around that. Mm -hmm. It's, 
I, I appreciate the levity with which you bring to talking about unfollowing <laughs> me. And, and I'm thinking at the moment about sort of human fragility, but in this conversation, especially white fragility, you know, um, and so I'm, I'm chuckling and my heart rate is increased <laughs> as I'm sure yours is possibly. One of the things that I was struggling with in, in that week is that a lot of white people wanted, I love your, your, your explanation of this isn't a housewarming <laughs> and a lot of white people want to share, you know, I'm not racist. Here's, here's how not racist I am. You know, and there are um, famous examples that are skewered frequently, like I have a black friend. (laughs) And I've been thinking about, we talked about this in the conversation on Instagram that led to this conversation. I've been thinking about allyship or or being a co-conspirator, hearing different phrases these days, about how performative allyship is not helpful. And we spoke about how in yoga and in all the facets of my humanity, including investigating um, my own racism, that not being performative is important to me. As much as social media is a superficial sphere, like you said, it is an extension of who you are. And so I really had to sit with how much am I going to share about, about what I do, have done, and will do and what's the balance of what's the balance that that leads to the most authentic share mm-hmm. but like you said it is a process and i don't think it's one that needs to be encapsulated actually that post i got cut off multiple times i had to keep editing out little bits um, <laughs> to try and cram it in the text box for for me, uh, Buddhism is a is a part of my practice, and in Buddhism, mindfulness is is intimacy. It's a stepping toward. It's a turning toward rather than turning away from. And I think that this is an outcome that we don't frequently get from social media. Mm-hmm. It allows us to do things at a distance. The phrase that I've thought of recently is we should take this offline, which sounds like almost a, a digital equivalent of like, we should take this outside. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, I don't want to do that. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not that, not that, but voices and faces and bodies. And like you said, like embodied experience, the digital sphere, since we're both on the Ayurveda page, it's such a Vata deranging space. Mm-hmm. It doesn't create space for feeling in the body. And, and I think some people, like you said, they have not been resourcing to have these conversations. But I believe that, that our practice is giving us all the skills we need to have these conversations. And what we have to do is accept some risk and, and accept that it's like any relationship. It's going to, it's going to ebb and flow. And we're going, to, we're going to take actions that are going to bring us closer and, and also actions that are going to create some distance. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you, know, what I, you know, what I didn't share, and I, I haven't shared this with you, 
there, you know, there was, or maybe I shared a little bit, but there was an aspect of, of the scenario that was quite triggering for me and that I, I had something come up that reminded me of like a, you know, a situation in the past with the person that I feel connected to in, in whatever reason. And even though ours was a um, social media relationship that I, you know, had relationship with and I felt the need to, to question something that was said or something that was happening to share something that was happening in my experience that was harmful for me. And so when we talk about anti-racism work, it's not, you know, what the intention was, it's the impact. And when I shared this impact with the person, white woman, we've known each other for about five years. Uh, she just completely shut me out, basically said, that's your opinion. And that was the end of that dialogue. And so I, I did not want to allow that scenario to continue to limit my voice in whatever way it was. And so I'm like, I, I was just really questioning our, you know, our interaction from the, from the space of, of my truth. And I'm, you know, it, it's funny, how, like how this is all played out. But for me, it was to, to really like, again, this is all about disruption is so was to disrupt that, that pattern in my energy space. So a phrase you used was bypassing. And so that would be an example of bio, spiritual bypassing is your, you know, putting when someone shares with you, how they're experiencing your actions and your behavior and your words to say that there, there's, there's no truth in their share that that is a, a manifestation of their mind and really a disavowal of their experience and, a, and an unwillingness to take ownership of the karma of our, of our words and our actions. Mm-hmm. I was chatting about, before we, we had this conversation, I was chatting with a close friend and sort of bringing her up to speed and I, and and I said, you know, I, I don't, well, I know a little bit as to why this unfolded the way it did. I said, but, you know, I would imagine that there are people of color and there are um, black people uh, who, who just don't want to see another white woman's take <laughs> on, <laughs> on spiritual anti-racism and, and what that looks like. And she said, you know, that's my that's my concern. That's why I don't want to share. I don't want to be another voice that gets it. And I'm really afraid of getting it wrong. But I've been thinking about how uh, it's very popular to locate the racism outside ourselves. But if we can, if we can think about racism as an aspect, an ugly one, but about an aspect of our characteristics, right? Our human Mm -hmm. characteristics, Many of us come to perhaps not like, but acknowledge the darker aspects of our person. I have a tendency toward gossip. I have a tendency toward anger. I have a tendency toward def- like defensiveness. And if we start to look at racism as just this part of being human, then it just becomes another aspect that, you know, at some times is more prominent based on what's happening and at other times is less prominent, but becomes um, less 
reflexive and more thoughtful, mm-hmm. just like the just like the rest of our practice. And I, I was wondering if you had anything to say about that. Yeah, and and that's how I you know I personally experience my anti-racism, anti-oppression work is that we have it's the you know the tendencies that are the result of the culture. The culture is the result of the systems, and so to to start to undo the work, the the closest place to locate is with the self, and to to start that unpacking and to start that dialogue. And as much as, you know, white people have to look at how they've internalized white dominance as a person of color, I have to look at the, the layers of oppression that I've internalized and unpack those things. And that, that work is, it's, it's messy. It's uncomfortable, like we've talked about. But I, I think that is really the place to, you know, as we, the place to locate, the place to begin, the place to center. I don't think, I think it's a practice. Like you said, I, I don't think that at any one point in time that everybody's going to kind of like wipe their hands and be like, we're all done with that. This is a, a system, a dynamic, a culture that um, goes actually even beyond the states, the United States. It's, you know, colonialism. It's so, it's heavily embedded. It is what we're, you know, what we have to continue to investigate and to disrupt. A good place, a practical place for people to start is uh, accessing resources. And one of the, I think one of the um, most exceptional resources I've listened to that bridges the gap between politics and spiritual practice is Dr. Larry Ward's three-part series on America's racial karma. Hmm. Um, Did you know Dr. Larry Ward? Mm -mm. So Larry was supposed to come on the podcast but just a, you know, he's very busy at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that. Yeah, <laughs> he had time. <laughs> and now he's very busy. So I was listening to to these lectures, and I'll add them to the show notes if this becomes a podcast. And I was listening to lectures. I was I remember the road I was driving on. It was in the spring, and he talked about the import when we think about racism. We should write down what makes us so afraid to talk about racism. Hmm. I was driving, Harvey wasn't in the car, and I just started to weep. Hmm. And it, it, it unlocked something in me that made me realize that it's just another aspect of my personality. I so often go into conversations like, here's all the information. I did the research. Here's what Harvard says. So you can't argue with me. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that it's, it's this deep seated fear of not, not willing to turn toward, not willing to discuss Anyway, I personally, I found that practice to be very helpful. (laughs) And that's, you know, really tied to a a culture that has framed whiteness as perfect or as superior. Like that's what's been internalized to, you know, and and that is, that is the unpacking. And I, you know, one of the phrases that I like when talking about anti-racism work is that, you know, the grief and liberation go hand in hand, you know, like that, that there will be the, the sadness there, there will be just 
um, you know, the, the whole scope of, of, of grief um, in this process. But it's, you know, the realization that the kind of the, the world as it exists is, fr- is far from the truth that we know. And that the, the culture that we live in is in, invested in it being that way. And so, you know, and as much as I, I, I forget the exact question that you had, but I, I think the, the secondary question is, you know, what is my investment in whiteness? As in, you know, white culture, as in all, all these systems that are producing benefit, you know, to to white people overall. And that's not saying intent, you know, years ago, that's the intent. The, the stru- and some, they're still intent. Um, the structures, you know, perpetuate. And so to break down those those structures, then there has to be a willingness to disinvest. Wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you, are there any questions I didn't ask that I should have asked? I really just showed up to be here and to, <laughs> to be in dialogue. I, you know, I will say no, because I, I won't, I don't see this as kind of a, like a, a ending conversation. I, you know, would, would like to stay in this dialogue. I think, you know, we, we talked in terms of just having some, some sense of kindred between us. And so mm. as, as two people that kind of travel towards that headspace, but have an affinity for the, the mind body, I, I think that there's more to explore. And I look forward to, to that. So That is a very good point. The uh, linguistics nerd in me thinks leaving it as an ellipsis, not a period. I love using ellipsis. So. <laughs> Awesome. That's also the mystic in me. So nothing is closed. So (laughs) yeah. What work, what work are you doing this summer? I know it's a whole other, so I know it was a whole other ball game with pandemic, but what work are you doing this summer and autumn? Yeah, I um, have a couple different projects. I, my um, full-time employment, I am in the consulting space within nonprofit profits and public institutions. So I had already been shifting and reframing my work to be really focused on centering equity. And so mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of that work happening as well as conversations now within the, the wellness space for that same thing. Um, but most particularly, I am really framing out space for, um, you know, Black women caregivers um, and, you know, broadening that to BIPOC to really have space to to process these times and so there's some efforts that I'm doing to in essence co-create pairing with um, other artists in the community around yoga philosophy and yoga practice to have some delivered things (laughs) so is your work all um, is it all offered in person in Indianapolis or do you have you moved any of it online it is in virtual space at this moment. So um, there's a kind of a dialogue that I have going right now on my Instagram account, just rebirth underscore healing space. And then uh, I am working to have more virtual offerings online. So I have a little one at home and we have small living quarters. So I now will be having some external space soon for recording video without child giggles and noises in the background, which I know people enjoy as well, but it's also just good to have space. 
<laughs> I had to chuckle because one of my students said, we were just chatting about something and, and she said, you know, and I enjoy your online work and I, I don't mind Harvey's toys being in the background. I'm like, well, I'm glad you don't mind because there's no other option. That's, <laughs> that's the only place. So <laughs> yeah. So the, the office is the playroom is the yoga space. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all have to make space for the personal. Right. So, um, yeah, so more offerings coming virtually soon. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. This was lovely. And I'm glad that we actually (laughs) did get to connect. And, um, yeah, in my head, I was like, how do I, because it was so virtual, you know, so it was like, how, like, how do we just have a dialogue? And yes, people can reach out and just have conversations. <laughs> it's so. the, the, you know, we talked about how the digital creates distance, but it creates distance between people we know, you know, everything I think, I think so many things are better in conversation. I know sometimes we need that distance because we don't feel sufficiently safe to be in proximity. We don't feel that there's been a sufficiently safe container created but too often there is a sufficient container and we still use the distance. Yeah. Com- I think everything's better in conversation. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mitzi. Have a really, really lovely day and good week. Thank you for you taking the time. Well. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. A heartfelt thank you to Mitzi for making the space uh, in her schedule and making the emotional and mental space to have this conversation. I'm very grateful. Check the show notes. You can simply scroll into the description within your podcast app, or you can, of course, go to where you stream the podcast to find the links to Mitzi's Instagram and the other links that we referenced. That's all for now. Take care of yourselves, yogis.